the Triathlon Show 331. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on this week's episode, we're back with part two of my interview with Dr. Mark Burnley. In part one, which was last week's episode, we talked about the lactate threshold and uh, different ways of measuring it and how to use it in training and so on and so forth. If you haven't listened to that already, I recommend you go and check that out. But it's not necessary to do that before listening to this one because they are uh, kind of independent episodes. The topics we will discuss today include VLMX, polarized training, and using complexity measures, which will explain a bit more what that is, to assess fatigue. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. Today, I want to talk about Roka's range of wetsuits and why they are such a fantastic option. First, Roka have a wide range of wetsuits from the entry-level Maverick that is still extremely high quality, all the way up to the flagship model Maverick X2. All of Roka's wetsuits come with the patented arms-up technology, which maximizes shoulder mobility, which can otherwise be quite restricted and result in less efficient and slower swimming. Roka's wetsuits also have patented buoyancy profiles for the fastest possible body position in the water. And if you're somebody really struggling with buoyancy, then the MX Max Buoyancy Suit is probably the most suited for you because it is the most buoyant wetsuit of all of them. There are lots of other fantastic features in Roka's wetsuits, including things like the exoskeleton in the X2 wetsuit that uh, improves your speed and propulsion by maximizing the connection between your hips and shoulders. You can read all the details about this and other features on roka.com and visit roka.com for slash TTS for 20% off your order. And thank you to Zen8. The Zen8 indoor swim trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. I recently caught up with the team at Zen8 and had a great discussion around what might outside of improved consistency be the number one thing that the Zen8 swim trainer can help you improve. And one of the things we talked about is the catch phase of the stroke. Practicing your catch when on dry land on the swim bench allows you to really work on that proprioception and motor patterns to maximize your catch also in the water. This is the number one use case reported by professional athletes using the Senate trainer. These athletes have all the time in the world to swim however much they want, but they still find benefit in using the Senate for the specific purpose of improving their catch. Check out the Senate swim trainer and get a 20% discount on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. And remember, you can get a full refund if you don't love it after two weeks. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Mark Burnley. All right, uh, let's move on to the next topic, which uh, is VLA Max. So first of all, uh, can you discuss a bit around the background of VLA Max? And well, first, maybe a short definition. We have talked about it in many episodes in the past on the podcast, so many listeners will be familiar. But if you can give a short definition and then the background of where it comes from. Yeah, so VLA Max was something that I didn't really even know much about until a year or so ago, and it just suddenly started appearing on Twitter, and it was was something that I hadn't really come across. And essentially what VLA Max is is trying to do is measure the uh, maximal rate of of flux through glycolysis. 
And the way it's done is you take a blood sample at rest and then you do a 15-second sprint or a 20-second sprint. And then you take lactate samples after that. You look for the highest lactate sample. And then what you do is you you work out the rate at which lactate has increased. And that gives you some measure of um, the glycolytic flux or supposedly does. Um, now, the background is, is is quite interesting because... It comes from a paper by Maeda in 2003, who did a really nice um, description of cellular energetics. And one of the things within that was the rate at which oxidative phosphorylation was happening, the rate of breakdown of phosphocreatine, and the rate of uh, the flux rate of glycolysis. So uh, one of the ways of looking at that, of course, is to look at how rapidly lactate appears. And that's fine, so long as lactate is not also disappearing at the same time. And this is where lactate or VLA max becomes a little bit problematic at the whole body level, because you're measuring lactate remotely normally from a fingertip or from an earlobe. And to get the lactate there, it's got to efflux the muscle, it's got to transition through the bloodstream, um, it's then got to reach the site you're measuring it at, and then you measure it. And at that point, the relationship between the lactate concentration and the flux rate in the muscle is is a quite distant relationship at that point. So that's where VLA max comes from, is this notion that you can take a lactate sample after a maximal sprint and measure and, and estimate the rate at which lactate increases in the blood and from that, you can estimate uh, maximal glycolytic flux in the same way that you might measure VO2 max. So that's the the underpinning basis of it anyway. Yeah. So, but basically the the initial model is at a cellular level, Yeah. Um, but the application of it is at a whole body level and yeah. and that's a potential potential issue. Yeah. Uh, so so I mean, we know from Brooks's work on the lactate shuttle that, that lactate is a, and, and he's just recently published another um, review on this, that it is a really dynamic molecule, uh, or a really dynamic metabolite in terms of how it's used, where it's used and what a particular lactate value actually means. And so, we talk about rate of appearance and rate of disappearance. That's what your lactate concentration is, is a balance between those two things. It's not a direct measure of glycolytic flux. Um, and so that's why the VLA max to me is inherently limited as a, a marker of physiological function for that reason. It doesn't mean it isn't useful, but it means that it's not the kind of thing I would be using because there, for me, there are just too many steps in the process that limit the extent to which you conclude about flux rates rather than simply concentrations at certain points in the body mm. and uh, what is the cons well is there a consensus on vla max in the academic world or can you talk a little bit more broadly about um yeah just generally what 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 the scientific uh, knowledge around VLA max is because uh, I've looked into this and there are very few publications, especially in English, that measure that even mention VLA max. So, um, so can can you talk about that? What what is the reason for this for, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, academically, it hasn't gained a great deal of traction. To be honest, um, there are three or four or five papers uh, where you will find it uh, defined as VLA max was originally. Um, and, have, and have studied it. Um, I don't find many of them particularly convincing. Um, and I think there's 
from a, a mainstream exercise physiology perspective, there's actually, I don't want to use the word trauma because that sounds a bit bombastic, but there's 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 been a huge number of what I would call pitched academic battles over what lactate and lactate threshold and all those kind of things mean. If you go all the way back to the uh, early to mid-1980s, where there was a huge academic battle between George Brooks's laboratory and Carl Wassman's laboratory over even the the notion of an anaerobic threshold and whether lactate was produced by anaerobic means during exercise and that kind of thing. And that's um, shifted into in the 1990s. There were lots of debates about the maximal lactate steady state and the lactate minimum and various other measures of, of, of lactate threshold as well. And those were sort of uh, kicked around. And so um, from a, a biochemical and from a, a, an exercise physiology point of view, um, lactate has always been really controversial and parameters derived from lactate have always been really controversial. And for that reason, I think a lot of um, physiologists kind of steer clear of this because unless you can tie it to a very clear physiological process, which is robust and defendable, you're not going to convince many physiologists of its worth. And because of the, um, we now have George Brooks's lactate shuttle model as probably the, the, the central um, uh, paradigm with which we interpret lactate in the muscle and the blood, um, something like VLA max is always going to be up against it in terms of the mechanistic basis of it because of this appearance, disappearance and lactate sinks all around the body, which is going to affect the relationship between the exercise you do and the lactate that you produce. So that's always going yeah, to be an yeah. issue. Uh, why do you think it has gained so much traction in recent years? In not, not, not in, not in uh, the academic world, uh, to be clear, but uh, outside of that. Yeah, so from, from a coaching perspective, if you can do a very short sprint and then measure something physiological and then conclude something about your training, that's a powerful tool to start with. So you can, and, and if you if you are convinced that that has physiological robustness, and you think that's a real physiological parameter, then it's quite an easy sell to say, well, provided you can measure lactate and provided you can you know, measure your, your sprint power over 15 seconds, we can give you a VLA max and we can then give you some software. You obviously have to pay for it to then you know, understand all of your training and, and other parameters that, that derive from it. So it's... It's, it's what I would say is if you're going to use it, it's fine to use it as, okay, well, what is your VLA max in millimoles per kilogram per second now versus after training? But to then use it to start to try and predict your VO2 max and all of your training zones and all of that kind of stuff, I think that's going too far. So just as an example, if you've got a sprinter and they've got a high VLA max, that makes sense. If you've got an you know somebody who's doing ultra endurance stuff, they've got a very low VLA max. Those two things make sense. The changes within those two individuals might actually be too small to be physiologically meaningful anyway. And the VLA max itself, again, comes up against those problems of it's not really measuring a flux. It's just measuring a change in concentration after doing a sprint. And where that, what the physiological underpinning of that change in concentration really means for the muscle and what, the, what is going on in the muscle is very, very speculative. So... You know, for that reason, I think it 
it's used a lot because it's easy to measure, I think is the answer. It's easier to measure VLA max than it is to measure lactate threshold, for example. It doesn't take as long. You don't have to take as many blood samples and you get an, a number that other people are using so you can compare it. Um, that doesn't make it physiologically meaningful. Yeah. Uh, do you, last question on that, do, do you think that there will be an increased interest in the academic world to investigate the whether there is any the mechanistic underpinnings of it and, and whether there is any potential applications for it in the future? Or do you think that that's not going to be? Uh, yes and no. I think um, it's certainly something that now I know about it, I would investigate it. But I, you know, thinking about the way I would do it, I would probably use it as an inter- interesting undergraduate dissertation project. It wouldn't be something that I'd be generating an entire research line over because um there are already you can look at it as a as a measure and you can understand already what the limitations are so from that perspective i don't think it's going to get a great deal of mechanistic interest because it's already pretty obvious that taking a lactate sample from a fingertip after a sprint is not necessarily telling you what's going on inside the muscle where you might want to look is is perhaps in a laboratory that's doing biopsy samples and seeing what you know how in how the ways in which the samples you take remotely at a fingertip or the earlobe relate to what's going on in the muscle after that kind of protocol where you might find some academic traction is in those individuals that want to destroy VLA max as a concept entirely so the the classic paparian refutation of a particular theory is where that might come from so if i was going to do this that's probably the camp i would sit in was was i would be trying to demonstrate why this is wrong rather than why it's potentially useful that does not going to stop people using it though because it's already out there it's kind of the genie's out the bottle on that one and if people find it useful if people find it that, that it helps them get to the place they want to get to then that's absolutely fine but as i've said before it's not really what i would be using it for and you know, i wouldn't you know over and above using lactate threshold critical power and just doing a maximal sprint and measuring your maximal sprint power or maximal sprint speed as a measure of of if you like anaerobic potential um I'm not sure it adds that much value. Yeah, in that sense. yeah. I think I think the the sprint is is an interesting one actually. In 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 the triathlon world, I think that a lot of us are not even technically proficient enough at doing a sprint. So so I think we're not necessarily limited metabolically. Our max power is not limited metabolically as much as it is technically. So mm. so that's yet another potential yeah. uh, problem with with measuring it correctly. Um. All right, and then the next topic. So recently, you and your colleagues, uh, you worked on what ended up becoming a special communication series uh, where you discussed polarized training and why, in your case, your group discussed why it is not uh, optimal for endurance athletes. And then there was uh, another group of researchers that uh, that published their arguments for why, why it is. So can you talk about the background to that? What led you to start working on, on this Yeah, so it was um it was back in the first lockdown in 2020 that um you know obviously a lot of people um about the only thing they could do was was go out and train and the only thing they were able to share with people was their their training diaries and things like that. But it came alongside quite a few papers coming out showing um how elite athletes were training and time and time and time again people were highlighting well there's this polarized 
training distribution that appears to, to, to be happening. And then there was a second stage where people would start to say, well, polarized training is optimal because, and start to say, well, you need to do loads and loads of low intensity stuff because of X, Y, and Z. And then you need to do loads and loads of high intensity stuff because of X, Y, and Z, and then try and minimize the stuff in the middle because, and then they, they state their reasons. And um, I remember texting Andy Jones uh, in the middle of the lockdown that this doesn't quite sound right. So we, we might want to think about maybe writing a, a, a counter to this because it's to us, it was there was a lot of confirmation bias of, oh, here's an elite athlete. Ah, they're doing polarized training. Therefore, polarized training is optimal. Um, now, I'm being a little bit, um, I'm kind of over-egging it a bit. People weren't quite as unsubtle as that. Um, but that's the way it was coming across, that, that every time people put up a training distribution, it looked like polarized training was being done and therefore polarized training was was the way to do it. Um, and out of context, it didn't to us make a lot of sense. If you're an elite athlete and you're training twice a day, um, yes, you're going to do a lot of a high amount of low volume stuff, especially if you're you know, an Ironman triathlete or something like that, then yes, you're going to do a lot of low volume stuff. Uh, and then 800 meter runners, you might say, well, an 800 meter runner, they're going to do some very, very high intensity work. They're also going to do quite a lot of low intensity work because that's what, um, you know, they're going to develop aerobic and they're also going to be developing, you know, sprint stuff. So that's going to look polarized anyway. So that doesn't necessarily make it optimal all the time. So um, I, I spoke to Andy about that and, and he and I had just done the Science of Ultra podcast with Sean Bearden and, and just... Um, by chance, we both talked about polarized training as well, and, and his view on it was was pretty aligned with ours. And so we said, "Well, let's let's write something about this." And so we actually started writing what we wanted to be a comprehensive review. And I did a, a draft of it, and it just didn't. It it just seemed quite negative um, and quite um, how would I put this? Because we were we were so we were pushing so far back against it that it didn't really seem like a very balanced review. So what we wanted to do was do something where, you know, the other side of the argument was represented. And so Andy uh, contacted Medicine, Science and Sports and Exercise and pitched the idea. And then Carl Foster very kindly agreed to do the other side of the debate and uh, got Stephen Seiler and a few other people uh, involved in that as well. Um, and then we just started writing our, our pro-con um articles on that and that's essentially where that came from we had the easier job though because all we had to do was demonstrate that it wasn't optimal whereas they had the tougher task of, of trying to to make it look like it was the best way of doing it and i think in the end we ended up almost agreeing with one another um by the end of by the end of those those exchanges uh, and we've had quite a lot of um quite a lot of interest from social media about those papers as well. So it's, it's sparked quite a, a debate and reflection in, in those who've been both using polarised training and those who've been perhaps quite anti it as well. So it stimulated quite a lot of discussion in that respect. Yeah, I definitely recognise that period that you refer to where yeah everything was polarised. And I think I, I saw some blog posts or something about polarised tempo or polarised sweet spot or like if, as long as you put polarized to it like everything is great <laughs> yeah so um yeah, yeah no that's that, that's that's interesting to hear the the backstory for that and and i think it's important to point out what you said here at the end as well that you had an easier job because your job was not to say that polarized training is bad or that or to say that this is the optimal training method you just had to show that your argument was just that it's not 
the optimal method uh, even though at some parts of the season it can be it, it can be maybe maybe the most optimal but um yeah so what were your most important arguments in saying that it is not the optimal method for endurance athletes oh well the, the first and most obvious is that if you if you actually look at the time spent training um as opposed to because there's a there's a number of different ways in which you you work out your training intensity distribution so there's the time in zone and there's the the total time spent training when you look at we 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 were of the view that if you go out and do a training session you don't just pick the bits where you're actually working you also have to do the kind of the bits where you're not working and and so you actually have the whole package because that is important and when you do that um you end up you, you, in any training session, you're going to cross all three zones, essentially. So to say that you're trying to minimize one of those three zones and the one in the middle seems to us to, or seems to, us to be, be a bit strange. But also, when you look at the, the time people actually spend training, by and large, elite athletes will do something that looks pyramidal. So you'll do a lot of low-intensity work. So your, most of your volume is low-intensity. Then you have uh, a smaller volume of zone two work so in the middle so the sweet spot work and then a smaller zone a smaller amount still of zone three work and one of the things that um, also kind of uh, got me going with this as well was that the previous intervention studies that had been done on polarized training had often um, I, I would say unfairly compared it to what they might call threshold training so they'd have a situation where they do essentially your 80% in zone one, so moderate intensity work, and then 20% in zone three, so your your intervals and your, your high intensity work, and zero in zone um, two, as opposed to doing nothing but zone two and a little bit of zone one and then no zone three at all. And my argument would be I have yet to come across an, an endurance athlete or indeed any athlete who doesn't do any training above the critical power. That's that's just not how people train at all. So that's not really a threshold training thing. Um, threshold training will also include zone three and some zone one as well. It's just that there's an emphasis on zone two, perhaps. There's also the fact that if you're not an elite athlete, you're not going to be achieving the same volumes that an elite athlete will and therefore, you're probably going to be doing less zone one work anyway. And as a result, your your training is going to gravitate more and more towards threshold training by definition, because you're limited for time. So you want to use that time efficiently. So you'll tend to do higher intensity work. And that's where, where that comes from. The other argument that I had was, and this, this is a more perhaps a more difficult one to explain, but some of the reasons for using polarized training didn't make a lot of sense to me. So there's this argument that if you do a lot of zone two training, that will be autonomically stressful. In other words, you'll increase adrenaline you'll in, and, your, and your markers of heart rate variability will change, indicating that you're overstressing yourself. And so that's why you might want to either avoid or minimize zone two work. And the evidence for that comes from a paper where, and it's one of Stephen Siler's papers, it's a really nice paper, but it also actually illustrates that if you do zone two or zone three work, it has the same effect on these markers of stress. And so there's, you can't really sustain the argument that you ought to avoid zone two if zone three does the same thing. 
because they're therefore equally stressful. Now, you might make the argument, well, if they're equally stressful, you get more bang for your buck in zone three, but you can't use the argument that you should avoid zone two because it's stressful if zone three does or has the same potential to overreach you, if you like. So there was that argument as well. The third one was that um, a lot of people advocate uh, moderate, moderate intensity continuous training is, is the, the, the phrase that's often used in the literature and um, in coaching circles as well, which implies zone one. But actually, when you look at the literature, there are very few training studies that have looked at the physiological adaptations to zone one training. Uh, most of the, the training studies which call themselves moderate and continuous are actually performed in zone two. So they're exercising at 60, 65, 70% of VO2 max in their continuous training. Well, that's for most people. And most of these people are, are undergraduate PE or sports science students. This is zone two. So you're, you're, you're using zone two adaptations to imply that zone one should be done and zone two should be ignored. So, um, what I, un what I noticed from that was that the, the polarized training literature, or at least the literature on which polarized training relies mechanistically, is actually quite messy. Um, and the other argument you sometimes get is that the if you do high intensity exercise, you get less angiogenesis, so you get less capillarization if you do high intensity work. And again, a lot of that work has been done from single leg exercise, which is a completely different intensity spectrum to doing whole body exercise. Um, and for that reason, I don't think there's a good, uh, there's, there's that much information out there that, that really tells you zone one is the thing to do. What I would, um, also suggest though, and this is something that this is speculation on my part, is that you also have to understand how big zone one is. In an elite athlete, zone one is a huge training zone because their lactate threshold is going to be higher than most other people because they're either they've got a lot of type one fibers or they've trained them up and their type two A fibers have been trained to, to behave more like type one fibers. And so their lactate threshold is going to be a very high proportion of their VO2 max, maybe 65, 70% VO2 max. And so that means that when they do upper end of zone one training, the actual flux through the muscle in terms of oxygen, in terms of blood flow and that kind of thing is going to be rather high. And that's going to produce its own angiogenic stimulus, which is going to be higher than somebody who doesn't have that high lactate threshold. So using elite athlete responses to training to infer that this kind of training is right for everybody ignores the volumes they're doing, but also ignores their exercise intensity domain structure, which may be very different from a recreational athlete, for example. So it's this classic thing of one size does not fit all. Um, that's where my kind of thinking was in terms of the potential limitations and, and if you like over interpretations of some of the polarized training literature yeah and and you mentioned the compression of the zones in uh, or the domains in in elite athletes and then it makes sense if you're pushing your lactate threshold close to your critical power that uh, obviously you are going to have a smaller percentage compared to your recreational athlete in in that zone too, just for that reason. Uh, I think another argument that you brought up that, that I find very relevant is the differences in definitions about the, the, the zones or, or the domains that were, are used in different papers. And, and for example, I think some of the papers used 
two millimoles as the uh, as the delineation for the moderate and heavy domain and and i think a lot of athletes are well into what i would call uh that heavy domain at two millimoles so um so that's that, that's that's another thing like it's just yeah the, the methods are are not not consistent in in the research yes and i think that, that that could be a really interesting area for future research is to to try and understand just how common or how likely um, zone misclassification in this sort of area actually is because if you find that um, when you read some of the papers some of them have used ramp tests and measured heart rate and um, and gas exchange so they've, they've measured the ventilatory threshold but they've not corrected for ramp rate that kind of thing so that could also be an influence the heart rate itself is non-steady state so all of these things do need a, a you know there, there needs to be a little bit more checking done on this because it could be that a lot of the the zone one work or, or the the idea that athletes are working in zone one they are actually working in the lower end of zone two rather than zone one and that will that will completely change the uh, distribution from what looks like polarized initially if you then reclassify it correctly it may end up being pyramidal rather than polarized for just for that reason alone yeah so what response did you or counter argument did you receive from foster and colleagues well they they essentially uh, retold the story that, that's been told many times in the literature about the uh tendency for elite athletes to do this kind of training uh they also use the the autonomic problem uh, argument of, and which we didn't find particularly convincing um but one of the things that, that surprised us was that they talked about pyramidal stroke polarized training. And I think where we had agreement was that elite athletes tend to do a lot of zone one work. So the, the largest proportion of work that many elite athletes do is below lactate threshold. I actually think there is a, you know, that's an observation. I think there's really is some work to be done on whether that observation which is real, is also reflecting anything that's physiologically significant. So just as an example, about, it must have been 20 years or so ago, I actually uh, did a, a session with a, a bunch of swimming coaches who were, who were training uh, junior swimmers. So these were uh, people at secondary school in the UK. So they were between the ages of about 11 and 16. Um, and these swim coaches we were talking about endurance training and endurance training uh, zones and things like that and trying to map what runners and cyclists were doing with what um, swimmers were doing. And of course, swimmers do have a tendency to do very high volume, low intensity work because they want to get the feel for the stroke and the stroke mechanics, right? That kind of thing. So they do an awful lot of sets at those sorts of intensities. And we actually had a, a basic training program from Paula Radcliffe that Andy Jones had, had kindly given us as an example of what elite marathon runners do. And we put that up on a slide. And then one of the coaches sheepishly put his hand up and said, I'm really surprised that that's all she's doing. And he was arguing that his swimmers who might be, you know, 12 or 13 years old were doing considerably higher volumes than Paula Radcliffe was doing for a, a training, her marathon training. And we simply said, well, what would happen if your your students did half that, your athletes did half that? And he couldn't answer. And we couldn't answer either. And we, uh, it's myself and Jamie Pringle who were doing this. We kind of looked at each other. Nobody's really looked at this. And we haven't looked at it. And we can't find it in the literature. 
So I th- and, and to this day, the influence of doing very high volumes of what we will call moderate intensity exercise as training and the benefit that has over maybe bringing that down and changing the, the training. So nobody really knows what, what effect that will have um, because when we look at, look at it from a molecular biology point of view, what you need to do to impose a, a change in the, the oxidative machinery is to um, stress um, AMP um, protein-activated kinase. So AMP kinase is the thing, or AMPK as we call it. Um, and then that will then signal through to PGC1-alpha, which is the, the supposedly the master switch for aerobic adaptations, if you like. And to do that, you need to put the muscle under some level of metabolic stress. Now, you can do that in a number of different ways, of course. You can either do very, very long exercise until, you know, you're running your glycogen stores down. And then the reason you you get metabolic stress is because AMP, so you've got ATP broken down to ADP, that can then get broken down to AMP. When that happens, that signals to AMP kinase to signal to PGC1-alpha that adaptations need to occur. It's probably easy to do that with high intensity exercise because then you put it under very heavy metabolic stress. So zone three is really important for that. So all of those training studies where they looked at polarized versus threshold training and didn't include zone three, that was never going to work because that's where most of the adaptations, I would argue, that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. Whether or not, and the point I'm trying to get to is whether or not long, prolonged, moderate intensity exercise, so zone one exercise, produces those same signaling mechanisms and therefore those same adaptations we don't actually know and so i suppose the, the way of the way i look at it is how much zone one work do you really need rather than saying oh athletes do loads of zone one work so that's important to do how much can you do without you know and get the same adaptation without going completely overboard on zone one work i think that's that's an area that does need looking at because we don't know the answer to it at this stage. Yeah, no, that that would be that's a really interesting question. Uh, I do remember talking to John Hawley, and he was talking about swimming and how someone like Michael Phelps could win all of the distances, and how that's kind of incomprehensible because on in athletics in track and field you wouldn't see Usain Bolt win the four hundred and the eight hundred and the fifteen hundred, yeah, and and the five thousand. Uh, you you would barely see somebody win the fifteen hundred and the five thousand, but there are some examples of yeah. that, obviously, but definitely not the eight hundred and the five thousand. Yeah. So yeah, his argument there was that a lot of swimmers training for the shorter distances are doing way way too much training and yeah. not training optimally, which I found I found a good argument and uh, yeah. an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. Um, so regarding, uh, to wrap up the polarized training discussion, then what would you say, what are the key things that listeners should take away from, from this discussion? I think that the key thing is that, um, well, one of the things that, that I always think about in terms of training is that there's been a fixation on training intensity distribution. Um, uh, it's a little bit like, um, and, and what we really want to know is what, what are the best training sessions to do, right? So what are we going to tell people to do when they actually go training? What sort of training do they need to focus on? So, you know, how are you going to structure your sessions and to get the, the, the best adaptations and also to kind of balance that out with the best recovery and, and that kind of thing. So what you're really talking about there, if we use an analogy, it's a bit like, you know, when we talk about training sessions, we're talking about meals. When we're talking about training intensity distribution, we're talking about your food intake over an entire year. 
in terms of percentage carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Well, you wouldn't base your meals on those percentages. So you, you wouldn't say, right, well, I need to do this percentage of that and this percentage. You, you wouldn't kind of go to that level. So I think we need to kind of rethink how we, we think about, you know, describing training in athletes and, and what that really means, because I think we've gone a little bit too far in terms of fixating on, you know, the overall overarching, you know, at, at a, you know, across a year or across an, you know, entire periodization, um, you know, block rather than what the, the real things we need to look at in terms of the nuts and bolts of the training sessions themselves. So it's kind of, we need to kind of start looking more at the, the, the pennies rather than the, the euros, if you like. So it's that kind of thing. Um, and so I think that is, that's the next really important bit is to try and kind of get a little bit, a little bit more balance there. The, the second thing, of course, to point out is that there is no such thing as optimal. So one size doesn't fit all. If you're looking for the optimal training intensity distribution, you're not going to find one. Because in actual fact, I can buy the idea that you want to polarize your training at certain points. If you, if you want to look at training in that, from that kind of overarching way, then as you're tapering, you're probably going to polarize your training because you're going to do a lot of high intensity work. You're going to do some low intensity work as you're building up to competition. Whereas if you're in the middle of the season or if you're in a build phase, you might do a lot more sweet spot work if that's what, um, if that's related to the, the kind of intensities you're going to be working at. So, you know, in, in terms of bringing down volume, you might then focus more on, on one or two zones rather than focusing across the range in that particular sense. So again, um, we, we might want to start thinking away from focusing on training intensity distribution and then focusing actually on what training actually works day to day would be perhaps a better focus. Yeah, no, I've, I think that, that was a great a great takeaway message and and really great analogy as well with the with the food intake um yeah no that's that's fantastic and may, maybe an example just of how we figured out how to measure something training intensity distribution in this case and then we kind of hasten to think that okay because we can measure it it's important but maybe it's hmm. not as important as yeah. we have been thinking thinking yeah. that it is um, I'm conscious I've taken up uh, a lot of your time already. So, uh, but uh, do you have a couple of minutes to discuss some fatigue mechanisms? Yep, or yeah, yeah. To... All right. Yeah, be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about fatigue mechanisms in the different in intensity domains in in our last interview as well. But can you give just a quick rundown of what the main mechanisms are in in these domains as a as a background for the next couple of questions yeah so um if you think about again we, we talk about the, the moderate heavy and severe intensity domains we haven't really done a lot of work on the the extreme domain in this, this context but uh in terms of we certainly know from heavy and severe and, and we've used the critical power or the critical torque as the dividing line here if you exercise above the critical power or the critical speed then the fatigue mechanisms are very much peripheral in nature uh, in terms of metabolic depletion, accumulation, um, so high energy phosphate metabolism, and also changes in uh, acidity in the muscle. So those things are very important. And the rate of peripheral fatigue occurs four to five times faster above the critical speed or critical power compared to below it. Below the critical speed or critical power, we're entering, if you like, a, a an energy uh or an energetic fatigue domain where in which the depletion of glycogen 
and the storage of heat are important mechanisms in the fatigue process or more important mechanisms in the fatigue process than in the severe domain. So, you know, your classic hitting the wall, running out of glycogen. And we know now that there are various glycogen stores within the muscle. So the glycogen store serving the triad junction of the muscle where um, um, the calcium is um, pumped out and pumped back in again, um, that seems to be critical to muscle function. If that's lost, then um, that, that can result in task failure and hitting the wall, that kind of thing. So in the, the heavy intensity domain, we're talking more about, um, we do see peripheral fatigue, but its origin is probably energy depletion rather than high energy phosphate metabolism. In the moderate intensity domain, so working at an even lower intensity, again, we have glycogen depletion is important in that domain, but we also have increasingly as we get to lower intensity exercise, we have the influence of central fatigue. So the inability to keep driving the muscles or the motor units uh, at various uh, brain centers. And you think about serotonin, dopamine, balance, that kind of thing. But very prolonged exercise has a bigger component of central fatigue, we think, than does the, do the short abouts in, for example, severe intensity exercise. So if you think about it, as a, it's not really a continuum because we have these thresholds, so they are pretty stark. But at higher intensities, it's peripheral and high energy phosphate metabolism mediated. In the mid range, it's probably glycogen depletion and, and heat tolerance related. And the, the lower intensities, there's more and more influence of the central processes and central fatigue, brain fatigue that's coming into play at those intensities. And of course, if you're doing running, very prolonged running, muscle damage and mechanical wear and tear is going to be important in the moderate domain as well. So that's just something you can't do anything about. If you're going to be running an ultra marathon, you're going to shred your legs. And there's there's no two ways about that. So that's where that kind of swings back to the peripheral side. But the, that that damage is obviously causing pain. That pain will also demotivate you potentially, increase your perception of effort. And again, that's, that's central. So there's an interaction again between central and peripheral fatigue in the moderate domain as well. So those are the the main um, highlights of the, of the fatigue process in those domains. Yeah, no, that's a great summary. And uh, now, so what you have been discussing on your YouTube channel uh, a bit, which I'll also link to in the show notes, is how using measures of uh, complexity can be used to assess fatigue. So can you go into this a little bit and explain what is meant by that? Yeah, so... When we were doing the critical torque studies, looking at the, the fatigue mechanisms below and above the critical torque, as myself, Annie Van Hasselow and Andy Jones are doing this, I was the one who was collecting the data. And it just so happened that the way I'd set out the, um, the monitors, I was able to see within a contraction what the torque signal was doing. So when you do these sorts of things, you get them to push against a rigid bar and you see the torque rise and then it stays where the target is, and then it drops away again. So the participants constantly looking on the screen and having to reach a target torque and hit that and stay there. This is quite different from when you're doing cyclergometry, where you can just set the ergometer at a particular power, and then the person just pedals along, and they don't really care what torque they're generating. Some people do. The torque in cycling is quite an important thing. But um, in fatigue studies, your participant really has to have a good picture of what the torque is doing. And that, as an experimenter, gives you further insights to what's happening as they're hitting that torque target. And what I saw as the fatigue and contractions were progressing was that they got more and more 
regular in their pattern. So they start off um, really quite wavy and chaotic, if you like. And then as the participants fatigued, you'd start to see more of a more of a sine wave come in. So you could start to see something that was an obvious pattern appearing. And it just so happened that my uh, wife, uh, she wasn't my wife at the time, but it's not why I married her, but um, she was really good at signal processing and she'd done some complexity work in her PhD. And she said, oh, no, there are plenty of metrics we can use to actually tease out what's happening here. So we designed some code then and got Jamie uh, Pethick to come in and, uh, as our PhD student and later our postdoc to do the experimental work on this. And what we essentially did was we used measures which, which we call approximate entropy and detrended fluctuation analysis, uh, the alpha exponent, which those of your listeners who've, who've worked in heart rate variability might, might understand DFA or at least have heard of it. What these measures do, uh, what approximate entropy does is look at the regularity of the signal. So if you can imagine a signal that's just a straight line, that will have a very low approximate entropy. So it's a very regular signal. Whereas if it's really wavy and chaotic, it will have a high value for approximate entropy. So that's how we use that metric. DFA is is a bit more difficult to explain. It's about um, the noise color. So if you have completely uncorrelated noise, that's white noise. If you have um, very well correlated noise, which um, you know, is, is if you like, it's sinusoidal, that kind of thing. It might appear to be what we call a random walk. That's Brownian noise or red noise. And then in the middle, there's this really interesting thing called pink noise, which is where there's self-similarity. And that self-similarity is like a, or self-affinity, it's like a fractal pattern in the, the output. So it's not just a, a geometric pattern. It's also in a time series, you can see fractal things. So there's essentially... Um, there's a, a, a very clear relationship between the frequency and the, the, the type of noise that you're seeing, and that's pink noise. And we know that pink noise appears in all, in all forms of nature, and that's where you've got the most adaptability in your system. In other words, if you're trying to, and the easiest way to think about this is when you're contracting against something, is that if there's a sudden change, if, so for example, you start to fatigue, um, by being adaptable, you can actually adjust. And what seems to be happening with fatigue is that fatigue causes that adaptability to be lost. In other words, we lose complexity as we fatigue. So these measures, this, this approximate entropy starts quite high and it drops down as you fatigue. When you do, um, when you look at DFA, it tends to be quite close to pink noise and then it moves to brown noise or, or, or red noise. So it becomes less complex. So when we look at these metrics, we talk about complexity. There isn't really a straight metric for complexity. It's just these me measures of regularity and noise color that we use together. And if they change together, we can say that the complexity is changing. And with fatigue, complexity goes down. So in other words, you get, you start to, and actually it's quite interesting because you would expect that a good contraction is one where you've got a nice um, straight constant line against the target. That's not actually the case. What you want is quite a lot of waviness because that tells you that your neuromuscular system is quite adaptable. As you fatigue, you get less and less adaptable. It gets harder and harder to hit the target and you get more and more waviness in the signal. And that is where you've lost your complexity. 
Um, now, where that's come from, we only see this occurring above the critical torque or critical power. So this seems to be something that is peculiar to high intensity exercise. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've shown repeatedly that this is related to peripheral fatigue. So peripheral fatigue seems to be the main drive. There's an element of central fatigue in there as well, but I won't go into that right now. But most of this signal is coming from the peripheral effects of fatigue. And so ultimately what we've done now is we've actually measured what's going on inside the muscle by using high density EMG electrodes. So we can pick up what all the motor units are doing. And when you look at how all of the motor units you can pick up are behaving, they are actually changing and they're becoming less complex in the way they put out their signal to the muscle. So we think this is a change in motor unit behavior that then causes that loss of complexity as a result of peripheral fatigue. Where this is going in terms of where we might apply this is that we can take these measurements quite easily now in terms of torque output for cycling, for example. Obviously, torque output with a dynamometer is really easy. But then we also have uh, previous work looking at stride pattern. So as you age, for example, your stride patterning gets less complex. As So your gait gets less complex. We think that may also happen with fatigue. And so if you've got any wearable device that can pick up these sorts of signals, then we might have a situation where we can use it to track fatigue in real time and actually look at, you know, rather than having to have, and, and the power balance model that Phil Skeever's generated is really good, but you need to know your critical power and your W prime to start with to use it. With complexity, all you need to do is measure a signal in the real world and look at its complexity, and then you can see fatigue happening in real time if you're exercising above your critical speed. Now, we haven't got there yet in terms of talking to wearable tech companies or anything like that, but that's where I would see this thing going is it might actually give us the first real-time measure of fatigue that doesn't need us to measure anything else beforehand so that you can actually then monitor you know, your, your ability to continue that particular exercise or perhaps even uh, your recovery from a previous training session might also be picked up by these sorts of metrics as well. So you can talk about, well, do you need to push your training today or not? Well, your complexity might help tell you that alongside your your perception of effort and that kind of thing as well. So there's some really exciting stuff we can do here, but we're kind of right. We are only just finishing our lab work and then moving into that area in the future. Yeah, no, that's all super interesting. And it's, it aligns nicely with, I just interviewed Bruce Rogers about uh, DFA Alpha 1 yeah. and heart rate variability. And, and he talked yeah. about uh, the, uh, the concepts. Well, first of all, it aligns with what we talked about at the beginning of this interview with the threshold. But secondly, they are now trying to see if you can use it at the begin onset of exercise to see yeah. how recovered you are and what the state of, uh, of your autonomic nervous system yeah. is to to take an informed decision on what to do on the day and and yeah. use it for even in ultras to assess fatigue so yeah. so it's it's interesting to see that uh, similarly you you have you're exploring the the possibility of doing that using using different kinds of signals yeah and i, and I suspect in the fullness of time that these things may also interlink because uh, we know, for example, that there's a respiratory sinus arrhythmia associated with heart rate variability. In other words, if you change your breathing frequency, you can change your heart rate variability independent of anything else. There may also be a stride entrainment issue that goes along with it. So if you marry up all of these, the ventilatory, the heart, the, the muscle, you marry all of those things up, you could actually have a, if you like, a metametric 
of you know um, adaptability, recovery, fatigue level, or something like that. It's going to need a lot of validation, a lot of collaboration, but it's something that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, we may well have both the computer power and the scientific validation of these things where you actually have, you know, the thing that everybody wants is a, a clear marker of, you know, how recovered are you, and but also how acutely are you dealing with the particular exercise in front of you as well. So these are things for certainly for the future, but, you know, the tools are starting to uh, to show themselves for, for the useful yeah. tools they could yeah. be. Fascinating stuff. And I'll link to the video that uh, that you uh, made on this topic because it, it also has some nice visuals that uh, that can be good for listeners to, to see in addition to the audio format of the podcast. So, uh, yeah, I thank you so much, Mark, for your generous giving of your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been fantastic to talk to you. Where can listeners follow you? So I'm available on Twitter and my handle is at Dr. Mark Burnley. Um, I also, as you mentioned, I've done a few videos on YouTube. So my YouTube channel is All Out Physiology. So if you type that into a YouTube search, you'll find it there. Um, I haven't populated that very much recently, but that's just because of work commitments. But certainly as, as we get into the summer and, uh, you know, sports starts to kind of come back to the fore in terms of summer sports, then you know, there'll be certainly lots of things there that I can uh, to hang on and hang on to in terms of you know new videos and, and new scientific insights. There, that's my plan for the future there as well. So, yeah, those two places are where you'll find me. Fantastic. Uh, well, good luck with all of your ongoing projects, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Thanks very much. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Mark's profiles on Twitter, ResearchGate, and his YouTube channel, All Out Physiology, and as well as his previous appearances on that triathlon show in episode 257 and the last episode, episode 330. I will also include links to the ResearchGate pages for the polarized training is not optimal for endurance athletes and the polarized training is optimal for endurance athletes uh, papers that we talked about, the communication series. They are not open access, unfortunately, not yet. They will be when they are uh, officially published, I think, is the uh, is when they will be released for open access. But for now, if you have a ResearchGate account, you can just request access from the authors and you will probably get it, uh, I would assume. Also relevant for the the last topic of complexity measures and fatigue is a video that Mark produced for his YouTube channel, Things You Didn't Know, You Didn't Know, Physiological Complexity, as well as the episode that I did with uh, Dr. Bruce Rogers in episode 329 on DFA Alpha 1. So I will have all of that linked in the show notes. And remember, if you didn't uh, yet listen to last week's episode with Mark, we discussed the lactate threshold. Go back and have a listen to it. There's plenty of great information in that one. If you're listening to this episode in the week that it's released, uh, the Scientific Triathlon coaching team, including James, Lockheed, David, Alva, and myself, are in Mallorca running the first ever official Scientific Triathlon training camp. We are planning on doing the same thing next year as well in springtime, spring, late winter, and registrations will open around October-ish. The best place to keep in touch and make sure that you don't miss it when registration is open so that you can secure your spot on the camp is by being on the Scientific Triathlon newsletter. So go to scientifictriathlon.com for slash newsletter and you can sign up if you're not on there already. That's where we will first uh, launch the news about registrations being open for next year's camp. 
Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.